0: I want to introduce you to a friend of mine. Maybe it's a reintroduction for some of you. To a man that the Lord took home this past year. His name was Myron. He was an incredible man who loved the Lord, who sought hard after the Lord, and who sacrificed his life in the service of the Lord, investing his time in people. These few pictures give a little bit of a sampling of who he was. You see his book collection. That is just a snippet of it. And you see the kind of corny smile he had up in the top right. He was constantly punishing us with puns. And there is a pretty uh, apt picture of him to the left of the screen I met him in 1998 or so. I, was, I had driven uh, to Ankeny, Iowa, to Faith Baptist Theological Seminary. I checked into a dorm. I was going to be taking a class with Dr. John Whitcomb on the book of Exodus. And uh, I had finally settled into my room that I would be sharing with three or four other guys for the week. And there was a knock at the door. And lo and behold, it was this man. I didn't know him at the time, but it was Dr. Myron. He was looking for another student uh, that had not yet arrived. And he came in and talked to me for a couple of hours. We talked about all kinds of things in the scriptures uh, and started to develop a a real warm friendship. He invited me that evening to go back to his house. I use that term loosely. He was uh, also living in one of those dorm housing apartments that I was staying in just for a few days. That's where he lived permanently. He lived there for many, many years until maybe about 10 years ago when he finally bought a condo of his own that he could navigate a little bit uh, more fittingly in his elder years. Uh, Many of you remember the friendship that I have uh, with Dr. Myron and how it continued to develop over the years. He was with us yearly for a Bible conference. This man... um, a number of years ago, we were having some financial challenges as a church, and I told him we weren't going to be able to have the Bible conference that year. Just, we just couldn't do it. We couldn't put the money into it. And he said, no, I, I want to come. I'll pay uh, my airfare. I'll pay for a rental car. I'll pay for my hotel. I'll, you don't need to give me an honorarium. I want to be there. Uh, he loved to teach God's Word, and he really enjoyed being at Cornerstone. I contested. Said it didn't seem right that he should pay his travel, and speak, and not receive anything. But he was he was insistent he wanted to do that. And in addition to that, we were out at lunch um, that week, sharing lunch together, enjoying some time. And he pulled out his checkbook. And he wrote a two thousand dollar check to the church. Just I want to help. I said, Listen, you, you don't need to do that. He said, I have plenty of money. I'm, I'm all set. You know, my, my, my condo was paid off, and my car I just paid off with cash. I'm fine. No problem. Um, I was blown away. I tried to resist, but he would not be dissuaded. He had saved his money all his life and was desiring to share God's blessing with us. Dr. Myron truly valued the things of the Lord over the things of the Earth. And it was evident in just about everything he did in his life. The reason for his willingness to sacrifice some of the comforts of this life was because he knew about the glory that was to follow. And he put his money where his mouth was. He didn't just speak of it. He lived it. My friends, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, if you know Jesus as your Savior, you're truly a child of God and you have a glorious future that awaits you. We have an inheritance beyond compare. We have an inheritance beyond compare. And that is what we see in our text this morning in Romans chapter 8. Please look with me at Romans 8, beginning in verse 12. God's word says, So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we may be also glorified with Him. It is not everyone who shares in this inheritance. It is only those who are God's children that share this inheritance. You see, contrary to the mistaken notion that we're all God's children. We are all created by God. Our neighbor is created by God. Our children are created by God. We are created by God. That is not the same as being God's child. A creation of God is different than a child of God. Every human being, while created by God, needs to repent of their sin and call upon the name of the Lord call upon Jesus Christ to save them from their sin and to provide them with eternal righteousness this makes a person a child of God in this passage in Romans chapter 8 verses 12 through 17 we've already noted a number of items and there are a number of criteria for determining if one is a child of God first of all in verses uh, 13 and 14, we see that we must be led by the Spirit of God. We must be led by the Spirit of God to be convinced that we're a child of God. In verse 13, he deals with the negative. He says, if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you'll live. That's the the negative side. If, If we see within ourselves God's Spirit convincing us of our sin and putting our sin off, putting the desires of our natural being off, that is an indicator that we're being led by the Spirit, that we're one of God's children. In verse 14, it speaks positively. All who are led by the Spirit of God are the sons of God. In other words, as we see the Spirit producing fruit in our lives, what is fruit? Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness and temperance and the many other evidences that the spirit demonstrates in our lives as he as he forms god's character in us these are indicators that we are god's children in verse 15 there's a, a cry out we are ark present tense are crying out abba father there's an intimacy with god we know him we don't just know about him we actually know him We've seen His handiwork in the things He's made. And we've seen His intervention in our lives. We've felt that provision. We've sensed His guidance. We know Him not to be some stern, distant being who lords over us. We know Him to be an intimate, personal Father who loves us. God demonstrates His love toward us And that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. There's intimacy. We cry out, Abba, Father. And then in verse 16, another criteria that is listed, or one of the criterion that's listed, is we experience the confirmation from God's Spirit that God is our Father. In other words, the Spirit bears witness. With our spirit. The spirit himself, it says in verse 16, he's at work. He's doing this work of saying, You are a child of God. God is your father. You will be with him forever. God's spirit does this. These are indicators that God is our father. Now we come to verse 17. Verse 17. And if children, then heirs heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we might also may also be glorified with Him. This morning we will note three truths about God's children. First of all, God's children await an amazing inheritance. God's children await an amazing inheritance. It says, and if children, he's already talked about that, He's not questioning there. He's just saying this is the condition to be an heir, you must be a child. If you're a child of God, you're an heir, an heir of God, and a joint heir with Christ. The word there heir in verse 17 comes from the Greek word kleronomos. Kleronomos. It's one who receives his allotted possessions by right of sonship. I know that sounds like a technical definition, but just try to try to think through that definition for just a moment. One who receives his allotted possessions by right of sonship. The reason I want to make such an emphasis on this is you can see in that word, the word namas. The next slide will show us the word namas. It means law. Law. It's a legal right. The inheritance that we have as children. Because we're God's children, we have a legal right to an inheritance. Take a look at Romans chapter 4 for just a moment. Same word is used. Kleronimus. The idea of inheritance. It's used in the case of Abraham. Romans chapter 4 and verse 13. says, For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be the heir of the world... Did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. When God says you're an an heir of all things, you're an heir of the earth, this came as a right because God had made him part of his family. God had made him a part of his family. Now, there would be this concept of adoption as is mentioned in verses 15 and 16 back in our passage in Romans chapter 8. There was a, a very famous adoption in the Roman culture back in this day. Um, Julius Caesar had adopted a man named uh, Gaius Octavius Thurinus, who later took the name Gaius Julius Caesar Augustus. This was an adoption. He was the nephew of Julius Caesar. And it was through this famous adoption that Octavian became a principal heir to Julius Caesar. So the people in Rome would be very familiar with what's going on, that what we're talking about, this, this concept of formerly having a different father and now a new father, a legal right to this father and now you have a legal right to his, the, the inheritance that comes. This passage back in Romans 8 tells us that we are heirs of God. Heirs of God. Of God. I want to ponder that for a couple of moments. There are a couple of ways that you can take that, both of which are true, one of which makes more sense in the context. So we'll just talk about it for a minute. Both are true, so it's going to feed our soul as we look through it, okay? So let's take a look, first of all, at Genesis 15. This is an amazing concept, and it's going to be reiterated in a couple of occasions that we'll note in the Old Testament that will help us to understand the the glory of being called a child of God or a son of God and an heir of God. In Genesis 15, God is talking to Abraham. In verse 1, God's Word says, After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. It says, Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. Now that's how my Bible reads. But actually, you can actually just take a little pencil and, and write a line through shall be. Write a line through shall be. That word is not in the Hebrew. Here's what it actually says. I am your shield, your reward very great. Now, in our older versions, like the King James and the New King James, it says, I am your shield, your exceeding great reward. I am your shield. I am your exceeding great reward. There is something special that is there that God is communicating to Abraham about the relationship that they have and that. The, The thing that Abraham had to look forward to more than anything else was not Isaac to come and the multitude of children that would come out of his loins. Not the fact that everyone that cursed him would be cursed and blessed him would be blessed. Not that he would have a special place on the earth. Those are all wonderful promises. But he had a greater promise. And that promise was that God Himself would be his reward. The psalmist talks about this. Take a look at Psalm 73. I want you to notice verses 25 and 26 of Psalm 73. Asaph is the penman. Verse 25, God's Word says, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart, listen carefully, and my portion forever. I am looking forward to the inheritance. That's what he's telling us. Uh, Who do I have in heaven but you on earth? There's nothing that's greater than you essentially. You're my strength. You're everything I need. And you are my eternal inheritance. Not only does God say that about himself to Abram, does the psalmist say that to God in this Cry out uh, in prayer to God, but also the prophet Jeremiah says it when he's lamenting. Take a look at Lamentations chapter 3. Lamentations. You're in Psalms, go to Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations. If you find yourself in Ezekiel, take a left. Lamentations chapter 3. Take a look beginning at verse 22. God's word says the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. He's everything we need and God tells us He is awaiting. He's waiting for our arrival. And you know what? As a believer in Jesus Christ, I'm waiting to get there. Do you know you're going to be there? When you're there, do you suppose you'll have one of those abundant entrances that Peter talks about in 2 Peter chapter 1? A glorious entrance. Based upon what? The fact that God has made me his son. I wonder if he's looking forward to seeing his son. I think I can know the answer to that. By how he's dealt with me. And the abundant blessings he he floods into my life. Spiritually and physically. God gives us, and He gives us, and He gives us some more. We see His hand of tenderness, kindness, and love. We look forward to that day that we're with Him. It's a marvelous thing to consider that God is our inheritance. It's hard to fathom, I'd say. Don't you have a hard time wrapping your mind around that? That really is not the emphasis of Romans chapter 8 when he says that we are heirs of God, like he's our inheritance. That's not the emphasis. The emphasis more is on the fact that God is the guarantor that we will receive the inheritance. God is the guarantor, he will ensure that it takes place. That's the emphasis in Romans chapter 8, that there's no question. If you're a child, then you are an heir. An heir based upon the work and guarantee of God. And the result of that, being made sons and being made an heir, is that we are joint heirs together with Christ. That's what it says next in, in Romans chapter 8, and verse 17. We are joint heirs or fellow heirs with Christ. Well, what does that mean? Well, let's think about it. What will the Lord Jesus, the God-man, the Son of God, the second person of the eternal triune Godhead, what will Jesus Christ inherit? Well, let's look at this for just a couple of moments to get a little bit of a a taste of what God is guaranteeing to us as his children. Take a look first of all at Hebrews chapter 1. What we're talking about right now is the fact that as God's children, we are heirs to an amazing inheritance. There are implications of the the fulfillment of having God as our Father and the concept now of Jesus, that we are joint heirs with Him. In Hebrews chapter 1, take a look at verses 1 and 2 with me. Long ago... At many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, He has spoken to us by or through His Son, whom He appointed, what does it say? Heir of what? All things. All things. Heir of all things. This really is a, a furtherance of Psalm 2. Where God's Word says in Psalm 2.8, Ask of Me, and I will make the nations, your heritage, and the end of the earth, your possession. This is so true of us as believers in Jesus Christ that Paul could say to the church of Corinth, pause, ponder. Paul could say to the church of Corinth, all things are yours. Are the people of Corinth mature, thriving believers? Or might they be considered carnal and unable to handle the meat of the Word? In the same chapter that Paul says you're not able to handle the meat of the Word because you're carnal, he says all things are yours. This is because of sonship. Brothers and sisters, we do not need to cling so tightly to our earthly possessions For nothing in this world compares to the inheritance that is coming to us. It's so easy to say this as we sit here or I stand here. Don't cling so closely to those earthly possessions. And we're talking about eternity right now. We're talking about God Himself being our reward and being joint heirs of all things. It's so easy in this setting to... to, To to let it go. But in a few moments, we'll all leave this room. And we'll drive down the street. And something will happen. And we'll want to cling on to our possessions. See, God offers to us the opportunity to have an otherworldly perspective. And yet, we are so regularly brought back to thinking about the things of this earth. Jim Elliott once famously said, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. We're already in the book of Hebrews. I think it would do us well to turn to chapter 11 just for a moment. Speaking of the forefathers of Israel, God is recounting their faith. By faith, Abraham. By faith, Noah. By faith, Enoch. You you know the, the pattern of Hebrews chapter 11. We come to the forefathers of Israel and we notice in verse 16, but as it is, they, these fathers, desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore God is not ashamed to call be called their God, for He has prepared for them a city. I wonder what this city is like. What will it be like? You know, in verse 13 of that same passage, because of their faith in God and their expectation of that coming city, it says that they considered themselves to be what? Strangers and exiles in the earth. Why? Because they knew there was a better country coming. Jesus talked about that better country. He didn't use the word country, though. Remember in John chapter 14, He was about to go away. He says, Let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in Me. In My Father's house are many rooms, mansions, places, dwelling places. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again. And I will take you to Myself, that where I am, there you may be also. You know, one day, we are going to receive the full inheritance that we're speaking of this morning. And when we receive that full inheritance that is our right as sons, we will be free from sin, we will be free from bondage we will be free from pain we will be free from groaning crying loss anxiety depression we will be free from all evils my friend brother sister in christ you're child of god You're a son of God through faith in Christ. There's an amazing inheritance that awaits you. Don't squander these days that God has given you between now and then, clutching on to earthly things. Enjoy the earthly things. All things are yours. To freely enjoy, right? We, We... Spend some, we save some, we share some. We understand these concepts from the Scriptures. But don't cling to earthly possessions. They are just fleeting. While this great inheritance with all sorrows extinguished awaits us, we still live in a world filled with pain and difficulty. Which brings us back to our next point. God's children will suffer in this life. God's children will suffer in this life. This verse 17 will be on the screen. We've we've read it numerous times already this morning. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him. Provided we suffer with Him. This is an indication that we are children. William Hendrickson wrote, I know that I am a child, meaning a child of God, if I am willing when necessity demands to endure suffering for the sake of Christ. If I don't kowtow and turn away and say, no, no, I I won't suffer for the cause of Christ. I won't suffer for the sake of Jesus. I know that I'm a child that when suffering is ready to be mine, I'm ready to endure it by God's grace with his glorious help. Take a look at Philippians chapter 1 for a moment. Paul writing from prison, he talks about the fact that you know he's in prison for the gospel, for the sake of Christ. He's rejoicing because whether people are preaching Christ with good intentions or not, Christ is being preached, and he'll be rejoicing in that. And he asks them to pray for him, that he be released. He said, I don't know whether I'm going to be released, but I know this, it's better to be with Christ, it's far better, but to remain in the flesh is necessary for you. We're familiar with some of these concepts. As he tells them of his willingness to suffer on behalf of the Philippian church, He tells the Philippian church God's call in their lives to be willing to suffer. Look at verse 29. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in Him but also suffer for His sake. Suffer for His sake. What does it mean to suffer for Christ? It's to bear His reproach. Willingness to speak kindly, meekly, appropriately, boldly to our neighbors that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and that no man comes to the Father except through Him. That we'd be willing to bear His reproach by saying He is God. He is the ready Creator of all things. We did not evolve. We're not all just accidents, cosmic accidents that we can just eliminate at the discretion of whoever has that baby within them. We're willing to stand for the truth That Jesus created, designed people like us and like our unborn children. Bear His reproach, knowing that He is the way, the truth, and the life. Paul had gotten to the point that he was was so convinced of this that he actually embraced suffering. Take a look at chapter 3. Paul had come to the point that he welcomed difficulty. Because it was going to produce within him conformity to Jesus Christ. He understood this. So take a look at Philippians 3 and verse 10. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection. And may share his sufferings. Be made like him in his death. That by any means possible I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. In other words, I want Christ to be formed in me. And I'm willing to suffer for it. I'm willing to endure hardship so that Christ would be formed in me. Emotional toil, physical toil, spiritual toil. Paul experienced in his body the distress of a messenger of Satan to buffet him. And he embraced it. Why? Because in his weakness, God would be showing his strength. Look at what it says in 2 Corinthians 12, 9 and 10. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of what my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. Will you read the last line with me? For when I am weak, then I am strong. And I might say just by implication, I am strong not of my own resource, but of God's grace. God is strong in me. God is strong through me. It's not my strength, but his. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 5, God's word says this, for as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ, we share abundantly in comfort too. So it's not like God says, I want you to endure affliction and deal with suffering, and I will let you stew in it. We suffer with Christ, but we're also comforted in Christ. Jesus said, I'm not going to leave you comfortless. I'm not going to leave you Without help, I'm going to send another paraclete, another comforter. He's going to come alongside. He's going to remind you. He's going to remind you of all the things I've talked to you about. God has given us His Spirit, and we have comfort. Are you willing to bear His reproach? Are you willing to set aside some of your personal comforts? Are you willing to give up some of your time? For what? For the service of Christ. We hold all of our minutes. We hold on to them. We're a little treasure trove of minutes. These are mine. These are mine. I keep them. I only have so many to give out in a day, so I have to give some to work. And I have to give some to my family. And I keep some for myself, right? treasure trove of minutes. Whose minutes are they? They're His. He has given me a stewardship. And friend, you only have so many minutes in a day. So many minutes in a a week. So many minutes in a year. You only have so many minutes in a life. And God knows however many minutes you have. Before you ever breathe your first breath... God knew how many days you were going to live, so He knew how many minutes you are going to live. Whose are they? They're His. Jesus was very serious in talking about this. He didn't use these words that I'm using. He used these words. Mark chapter 8, verses 34 and following. Listen to what God's Word says. And calling the crowd to Him with His disciples, He said to them, if anyone would come after Me, let him deny himself adulterous and sinful generation, of Him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when He comes in the glory of His Father with the holy angels. Well, we live in one of these adulterous and sinful generations and and these words still echo from the eternal Word of God. God says we should be ready to suffer reproach for His name. You know, it's nice to hear about a man like Myron. A man like Jim Elliot, giving up some comforts, many comforts, in some cases all comforts, for the sake of God's kingdom. Our hearts are warmed as we think about it. But what about us? Are we, am I, willing to sacrifice? See, this is following the pattern of our Savior who did not please Himself. See, we have as God's children, a glorious, amazing inheritance that we are awaiting. And as God's children, in this day, however many days we have left, we will suffer. There will be difficulties that will come our way. Thirdly, as we consider this for just one last couple of moments, God's children will share Christ's glory. God's children will share Christ's glory. It says in verse 17, And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him, listen carefully, in order that we may also be glorified with Him. Now in the Greek, you don't see it in your, in your English, but it does have the word with. You see the with Him? With him, before, in order, that, and the with him at the end. The the, the words are compound words. They have soon suffer, soon suffer, suffer with. And then soon glorified. Dogza, to be glorified with. He's, He's tying this suffering with and glorifying with into one concept. One concept. Those that suffer with Christ will also be glorified with Christ. Those that are willing to suffer are those that are the children of God. Now you remember both uh, from our study of Romans and because this verse is very well known to Christians, that all have sinned and fall short of what? The glory. All have sinned and fall short of the glory. Now, in Romans chapter 8, he's saying, if we suffer with Him, we will also be glorified with Him. We won't be falling short any longer. Our sin causes us to fall short. God causes us to be glorified. Glorification, listen carefully to this. This is just a little doctrine for you. We need doctrine. Glorification is the third element of our salvation. The third aspect of our salvation. So let's, let's think this through. Justification. We have been Saved from the penalty of sin by faith alone, through grace alone, in Christ alone. We have been, past tense, saved from the penalty of sin because of what Christ has done. We've turned from our sin. We've turned to Christ for our salvation. Our sin is forever removed. The penalty will never be ours. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Justification. We have been Saved from the penalty of our sin by faith alone, through grace alone, in Christ alone. Sanctification is the second aspect of our salvation. In sanctification, we are being saved, present tense, from the power of sin. How? By faith alone, through grace alone, in Christ Alone. God is saving us from the might, the power, the dominance of sin. Sanctification. And then we have glorification. We will be saved from the presence of sin. How? By faith alone, through grace alone, in Christ alone. This work of salvation is a work of god god has saved us is saving us and will save us finally in glorification in the next portion of our study of romans chapter 8 we're going to see some development of this concept of glorification in in uh, verse 18 the sufferings that we face in this life are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed in us the glory that's to be revealed In verse 30 of the same passage, the glorification is certain. It's certain. Those whom God predestined, He also foreknew. Those whom He foreknew, He also called. Those whom He called, He also justified. Those whom He justified, those He also, listen carefully, glorified. Past tense. It's as good as done. Why is it as good as done? Because I'm going to hold on to the end for dear life because you're going to hold me in place. You guys, you're going to hold me in place. Oh, because I'm going to hold you in place. No. It's a done deal because it's a work of God. Justified, sanctified, glorified by the glorious might of God. It's a certainty. If you're a brother or a sister in Christ, if you know Jesus as your Savior, glorification like justification is guaranteed by the power of God. And this is how Paul talked about it in Philippians 3. Last verse for our reference. Ready? God's Word says this, but our citizenship is in heaven. From it, heaven, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will, not might, who will transform our lowly body, in the King James it's vile body, to be made like unto his what does it say glorious body how will this happen by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself all things god's power guarantees our glorification the reason we have such certainty about being glorified is because we have been united to jesus christ he earned earned the right to experience this glory. Not just by the fact of His divinity, but also by His perfect fulfillment of the plan of God as the God-man, God come in the flesh. He has already been glorified. And those of us who have been united with Him will also be glorified. My friend Myron has tasted the glory of these concepts. First in his study and teaching of the truths of Scripture. And on July 14, 2020, he tasted it when he was ushered into glory. When God's children are absent from the body, they are present with the Lord. Myron left his benediction at the end of his book, Law and Grace. It reads... This is how our study of law and grace ends. A look to the future and a promise of hope. Our life on earth may seem difficult, but in view of eternity, our earthly experiences are only a light and momentary affliction. So, we invest our remaining time here on earth in studying God's word more faithfully as we gain a better understanding of what God has done for us. We will respond with a new zeal, for devout and holy living. The more we respond to God's work in our lives, the more we will be able to reflect Christ's glory in eternity. But this will not become a cause of eternal pride for any of us. People will not wander around heaven. I can hear his voice saying this. He said this many times in class with the same exact wording. It's like a machine. People will not wander around heaven noticing a person person's reflected glory and say my how faithful this one must have been. No. We will see each other and say what a wonderful Lord Jesus whose brightness is being reflected. His benediction ends the bride eyes not her garment but her dear bridegroom's face. I will not gaze at glory but on my king of grace, not at the crown he giveth, but on his pierced hands. The lamb is all the glory in Emmanuel's land. Listen, if you're a child of God through faith in Jesus Christ, you know that this glory awaits you. You know that you have an inheritance that is Far beyond anything you could imagine. And you are looking for that city whose builder and maker is God. Perhaps you're not sure if you're a child of God. If that's true of you, you're not sure. You don't know about this glory and this inheritance. Uh, There'll be a number of us in the lobby. We'll be in the lobby in just a few moments after we sing and pray one more time, or two more times. Come out and ask. Ask. Hey, I, I don't know if I'm a child of God. Can, can you help me? And we will be joyed, overjoyed, to show you from the Bible how you can be sure you're one of God's children. Let's pray together. Father, you're good. Your work is perfect. Help us to entrust ourselves to you and help us to bear witness and to be willing to suffer reproach for your name, for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.